Turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, this twin epistle of Paul to the Colossians, so very much similar in design with, of course, some dissimilarities, but similar undoubtedly to his letter to the Ephesians. Last week we talked about spiritual realities both old and new. In the morning message we discovered 12 passages in the New Testament which teach us all the things that God shows us about our newness in Christ. And we rejoiced in that message about how God does make all things new. And that was a marvelous survey of the New Testament about how God brings us newly in Christ and so much more. In the evening message, I took you to Jeremiah's prophecy, if you remember, and specifically to Jeremiah 6.16, which begins by saying this, Thus says the Lord, Stand by the roads and look, and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is, and walk in it, and find rest for your souls." That's a passage that talks about the old, the old ancient paths, which of course is at one and the same time an analogy for the law of God, God's word, and how we are to take those old paths, the old paths of God's word, and, and look and ask for them and walk in those paths and thereby find rest for your soul. So we are encouraged in our Bibles, both in the Old and New Testaments, to actually pursue something new and something old at the same time. And that's, of course, a perfect combination. We have both our newness in Christ, and we also have the old paths of the Word of God in which we are to constantly tread. Tonight, I want to continue to emphasize our commitment here at Thousand Oaks Bible Church uh, to faithful ministry of communicating these old and new truths. And I want to do so from Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 to 29. Let me read those in your hearing. Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 to 29. Listen to these verses as I read them to you. Now I rejoice, Paul says, in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. If I were to title the message tonight, it would be something like this. Definitions of a faithful ministry. Definitions of a faithful ministry. And I see several in the text here in verses 24 to 29 that I would say should mark out every person. Now I know, of course, this is Paul talking about himself, talking about things that are unique to him, not only as a minister of the gospel, but also as an apostle. But I think by way of reflection, we can, all of us, Myself, of course, as an ordained minister of the gospel, but everybody, every single person in the local church can apply the truths, the principles that are contained herein in Paul's letter to the Colossians. And he certainly tells them about himself, but he also is challenging them to consider the kinds of definitions 
for a faithful ministry that anyone can apply to their lives. This is a message about faithful ministry. This is a message uh, as to how all of us can be faithful in doing what we're doing, regardless of what our ministry is. And there are some definitions that he gives to us here. And I think the first one is this. Let's call it Paul's ministry conduct. His conduct. His ministry conduct. Or if I were to principalize it a little bit more, it would be something like this. A faithful ministry is defined by rejoicing in your suffering for Christ on behalf of others. A faithful ministry is defined by rejoicing in your suffering for Christ on behalf of others. Look at verse 24. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, in his body, in his person, Paul says, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. Paul's talking here about his conduct. Uh, The way he presents himself in ministry, and then the results of it, the effects of it. And of course, he had, as the result of that conduct, much suffering. And you and I may, from time to time, even though we, uh, we have it pretty nicely here in North America, we have it pretty good, but it seems as though the longer at least I'm living, and the more foreboding it seems our world is becoming, Uh, we might experience some of this, maybe just a taste of what Paul himself experienced here. And yet, when he says what he says, it's very, very interesting. Notice what he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, the church. Now, if you read that, And if you're like me, you're asking the question, what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? I mean, he went to the cross. He died as a sinless man. He died an ignominious death. And when he died as that perfect man in violent sacrifice, there wasn't anything lacking. His his atonement was complete. His atonement was full. His atonement was perfect. His atonement, according to the Bible, was once for all. It was to the satisfaction of the Father. Uh, There was nothing deficient in His cross work. There's no lack in Christ's atonement of sinners like you and, and like me. So what does Paul mean when he says... In my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Well, I think it's probably something like this. Turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. If you want to get at the heart of what Jesus may be referring to, or at least what Paul's referring to about Christ, you might hear from the lips of Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 5. For instance, in verse 10, Sermon on the Mount. Beatitudes, this is what Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now persecution, of course, is a kind of suffering, right? And when someone is suffering persecution, Jesus said, Blessed are you. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, he says in verse 11. He says the the end result, the, the, the goal, the conclusion, the reward is the kingdom of heaven, as he says there in verse 10. So he says twice, blessed are those, blessed are you, when you are persecuted for righteousness sake, when others, verse 11, revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely, and then notice this phrase, on my account, uh, for my sake. You might even say something like this. When we suffer, we're suffering for Christ. Because as Christ followers, we suffer. And somehow, in the plan of God, in the economy of God, 
all of this suffering that's occurring for Christ followers in our world is somehow filling up this measure, uh, this cup, uh, this bowl of every kind of suffering, whether it's persecution, whatever kind of suffering it is, and it's going to measure itself up to the very point that God's will allows. And when that time frame comes, the end comes near. And this affliction, this suffering, this persecution that Paul is referring to there is, at least in my judgment, a likening unto the suffering that Christians undergo, that we experience, and in the economy of God, based on the will of God and the uh, sovereign allowance of God, and in the, the precedent of Christ's suffering all the way up to and including the cross, even though that's unique, and even though that's an atonement that you and I cannot uh, reduplicate, there is an amount of suffering that we as Christians will experience at least somewhere, somehow in the body of Christ and in our world today, especially in the third world, there are more Christians who are dying for their faith and who are being martyred than ever before combined in the history of the church. And every time they do that, every time someone gives up their life for the sake of Jesus Christ, it is filling up the very measure of what God himself is measuring out in those afflictions. And in a sense, it's exactly as Paul says here, we are filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Not him in terms of himself, but that which we do for Christ. That's what I think Paul is driving toward here. Look in your Bibles at 1 Peter chapter 3. This is another sense of this, because it is a very interesting passage and much debated, but this is what I think probably Paul is driving toward here. And he says, for instance, in chapter 3 of First Peter, beginning in verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, the very same thing that Jesus said, you will be blessed. You will be blessed. Why are you blessed? Because you're filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. He went to heaven, he's at the right hand of the Father, and his followers are now being afflicted, and they are filling up the measure of all of those afflictions which will await every true believer to some degree and in some measure, and they'll fill it up to the very point that God wants, and then all afflictions will be done. All afflictions will be over. Look at chapter 4, verse 12. 1 Peter, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Now that's an interesting phrase. That might be the very thing that he's referring to back in Colossians 1 as an excellent cross-referenced passage. And it's something like this. You have Christ's afflictions which are lacking and are being filled up, Paul says, in Colossians 1. And here in 1 Peter 3, you have the sharing of Christ's sufferings that you may also, Peter says, rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And of course he says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, a Christ follower, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Yeah, I think the, the first definition of what it means to be faithful in ministry is when you have righteousness righteous uh, deeds, righteous attitudes, and when you suffer for the sake of it. It could be in your own home. It It could be an unbeliever. It might even be an unbelieving spouse who is feigning some kind of support of you or maybe they're rabidly against you and they continue to criticize you. We actually have some examples, even our own fellowship, in unequally yoked situations in which people are, at the very least, marginalized and at the most, roundly criticized for their faith in Christ. And they're just filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, the sharing of the sufferings of Christ. And in their conduct, 
Their ministry conduct. You say, well, how's that a ministry? It's a ministry because you're enduring it. It's a ministry because you are thriving in it, or you should be. Because you're just sharing in Christ's sufferings. In your ministry conduct, you can be faithful. And you ought to be faithful. You say, well, I've, I think I've blown it more than I've been faithful. That's all right. Confess it to God. Seek His forgiveness. And if at times you need to seek the forgiveness of others, you do so because you want your conduct, even in the sense of the suffering in that conduct, to be a faithful kind of suffering. Your ministry conduct. How about definition number two? Number two. The first is ministry conduct. This might be your ministry commission. Your ministry commission. Look at verses 25 to 27. Paul says, Of which, speaking about the church, of which I became, or the NASB says, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Oh, there's a lot of richness there. And the first thing he says here, is that he has a ministry commission. Look back at verse 25. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, for your benefit. Paul says, I was commissioned to do this. I've got a stewardship. This particular word for stewardship is this concept. You remember Joseph in the Old Testament? Joseph was the uh, steward of Potiphar's household, right? He had a stewardship. He had a responsibility. In fact, the word economy comes from this Greek term. And it's a, it's a kind of responsibility, a, a stewardship, an obligation. Uh, I've, got a, I've got a role. I've, I've got a job. Uh, I have an obligation. And that's what Paul is saying. He says, I have an obligation, a responsibility, a command from God to minister as a servant on behalf of or for the benefit of the Colossians that he, Paul, must fulfill in order to be a faithful minister. You say, well, that's Paul, that's the Colossians. What about me? Whatever it is the Lord's called you to do. You say, well, what has He called me to do? Well, what are the needs around you? What are they? Just meet the needs around you. If you see a need, meet it. That's a calling. If you see a need, meet it. And I recognize fully that not every need constitutes a call from you, but if you are compelled to reach out and, and meet a need, then by all means, meet that need. That call may actually be to something very specific. Whatever it is, whatever ministry you're involved in. I heard someone even today in the morning service say, I just have one thing that I know I'm supposed to do. And I said, and that's right, you're following what Paul says, this one thing I do. And whatever that one thing is, do it with all your might. Do it with all your heart. Be faithful in that. It's a, it's a ministry obligation. It's a stewardship this, this particular word is rich and it goes all the way back even to that Hebrew sense of what Joseph had as a responsible person. And he was uh, that par excellence servant. He did exactly what God wanted him to do. You go back to, to read that, that section from Genesis 39 all the way to Genesis 50 and that whole section is about the grand providence of God. And the object lesson for the seeing of that providence, was this man Joseph. And the Bible says repeatedly, starting in chapter 39, and the Lord was with Joseph, so that whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. And you say, well, that's great. That's Joseph. He's on the pages of Holy Scripture. Guess what? You're on the mind and heart of God. Every one of you. He may be illustrated for us on the pages of Holy Scripture, but you're no less the apple of God's eye. You're in his heart. And he's got a job for you to do. He's got a ministry. He's got a commissioning for you. Whatever it is, 
And whatever you're doing, God has, has an obligation on your life. And the first obligation that He has on your life is that He wants you to do what He wants you to do because He's your Creator. He created you. He formed you. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. And He has formed you for a duty. You remember Jeremiah, just in chapter 1 that we read last Sunday night. Before you were formed, I knew you. Paul says, I was called and commissioned while I was in my mother's womb. And yes, again, while there are some uniquenesses there, every one of us, because we've been created in the image of God, we have a commissioning where God is calling us to be salt and light. He's calling us to be a person who is faithful to whatever God has called us to do. So therefore, we too have an obligation. We have a stewardship. And Paul says about himself, let me tell you about mine. I became a minister, that's a servant, That's that word out of which we get the word deacon, diakonos. According to the stewardship from God, oikonomos, from from God, he's given me this economy, this responsibility, this obligation. And it says, it was given to me, of course implied, by God, from God, for you. That's, That's rich. Each one of us has a job to do, has a ministry to undertake. And you know, I think that there are times when believers sort of float downstream, never quite knowing what it is that they're supposed to do. And of course, it can be difficult, it can be hard, it can be challenging to discern exactly, God, what do you want me to do? What kind of ministry do you want me to have? What are you asking me to do? Uh, what, what might my gifts be? Uh, what kind of uh, uh, spiritual ministry opportunity do you want me to have? Do you, do you want me to, to zero in on? And here's what I would encourage you to do. Pray about it. Pray. Ask the Lord to give you some specific situations and circumstances in which you sense that in His work of commissioning you, you have His pleasure. You have His blessing. You have His honor. You have His work. You have His power. That constitutes what I would assume is a plan and a purpose for you. I was thinking about this this morning. Just as I left the service and I went to the hospital And I was watching people. I was watching nurses and orderlies and cooks. And as they all came by, I watched their faces. And I kept asking myself the question. You can't always tell, of course, on the countenance of someone. But as I saw people walk by and I saw them, some of them would refuse to make eye contact with me. Some of them had frowns on their faces, furrowed brows. And I asked myself the question in the quietness of my own heart, are they happy? Are they happy? Are they happy doing what God has commissioned them to do? I mean, they're working the job. You would assume that that's what they're commissioned to do because they're doing it, right? God has no wasted time or effort. So if they're doing that job, and if it seems they're not particularly happy, and of course, maybe it could be that they're just concerned about their patients or concerned about others. Uh, they're looking intently on the inside, and it's showing a little bit on the outside. It may not be frustration. It may be intense concern. I also saw some people who seemed quite happy, quite blissful. Their countenance was up. And I wondered to myself, is their countenance up because they're fulfilled? Fulfilled in what they're doing? Rejoicing that they've zeroed in on their commission and what it might be? And now they're taking on, as it were, a ministry conduct? And there was one particular man who was in a gurney next to my friend Bob Primus. And this man had come from obviously dire circumstances and he was moaning and groaning. And he also was cursing and cursing a lot and cursing a lot out loud. And he was about a foot away from Bob and me. And as he was doing that, there was a uh, phlebotomist, someone who goes and takes blood. And he was attempting to take this man's blood. And this man was cursing up a blue streak even while this man was taking his blood. And this man was remarkably controlled. 
And as this man was taken away by the police later on, I ask this phlebotomist, uh, not a particularly good day. And he said, oh, it's okay. And I thought, what a good attitude. I wonder if he knows the Lord. That's a person who might very well understand their commissioning, right? They've got a conduct that they have to be faithful to. You can't lose it with somebody on a gurney. You might find yourself being taken away by the authorities. You know, every one of us has a calling, a a commissioning, an obligation, Paul says. A responsibility, a command from God to minister as a servant. How are you doing in your service? You've got conduct to accomplish. And you might even suffer for it. And then what he says, I think, thirdly, is amazing. Let's call it his ministry content. Not just his conduct, suffering for Christ, filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions. Not just the commissioning, I was made a minister, but also his content. Look at the latter part of verse 25. And this is rich. He says, I've been... I've been called as a minister. I've got a stewardship from God. It was given to me by God for you, for you Colossians, for you Gentiles. Here it is, to make the Word of God fully known. Wow! What a commissioning! To make the Word of God fully known. That's my, that's my ministry content I've got actual legs to my message. I've got, a, I've got an actual content to my ministry, to what comes out of my mouth. For those who are around me, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. I've got something to say. It's not just that I try to live a righteous life, as important as that is. It is not merely so. It is also what I say with my mouth. It's not just someone who walks around hoping that someone believes they're a Christian. It's someone who actually says, I'm a Christian. Can I tell you my story? Can I tell you how Christ came into my life? Can I talk to you about the gospel? And I love the way Paul says it here, to make the word of God fully known. Fully known. The full import of the gospel. The great value and extent of the Word of God. He's a faithful minister and it consists in actual content. We're talking about the Gospel, the good news, the faithful preaching of the Gospel to all that God has given me to preach to. That's what Paul is saying. And his content for ministry was none other than the Word of God. Faithful preacher Dick Lucas, who I've had the privilege of meeting, He was a faithful, godly preacher in the heart of London for many, many years. Single man, never married. He writes this, Paul himself knew, Paul knew himself, uh, knew himself called to serve the Word of God. He also knew himself called to serve the people of God. It is precisely by teaching the Word of God that the church of God is to be served. It is by the truth of the gospel that the church is formed, sustained, and equipped. Without a satisfactory ministry of the word, the church must either wither and die or assume more or less grotesque forms. This primary ministry governs all other forms of ministry in the churches. No spiritual ministries can exist, can exist safely or fruitfully in isolation from the word without risk of becoming both meaningless and lifeless. That's right. The word of God is central in everything we do. The Word of God checking us, checking our hearts at the door, checking our attitudes, checking our thankfulness, checking our gratitude. It's the Word of God that we preach and proclaim. And this is what Paul is saying about himself. This is my commission to be a minister, and this is my content to make the Word of God fully known. Here's another one. Ministry context. Ministry context. Here's the context. Here's what he says. I want to make the the Word of God fully known. And here is that context of ministry. For Paul, it's the Gentiles. Here it is, verse 26. 
the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. What is that mystery, Paul? Verse 27, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Wow! You say, why are you saying wow? What does that mean? Here's the wow of what I mean. Paul is saying, I want to tell you something, Gentiles. I want to tell you something, specifically Colossians. God had a plan. And that plan, all the way from the old days of that old covenant, that God had a plan for the nations. Not just for the Jews. God could have chosen those chosen people and said, they're it. That's all. And of course, as has been said, how odd of God to choose the Jews. He could have, he could have chose some, some other nation, but he chose the Jews to set his love on them. But not only them, he's also picked up out of the nations, the Gentile nations, those to whom he would set his love upon. And that included, praise God, some of you and me. For the most part, we're not Jews. We're Gentiles. And God had a plan all the way back in the very beginning. In fact, even from the beginning of time. In fact, even beyond the beginning of time. In eternity past, God had a plan for every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And God decided in the counsel of His own will that one day He would bring both Jews, the ones He's chosen as the apple of His eye, the people of His own possession, and Gentiles like these Ephesians and like these Colossians, and He would wrap them around the love of His heart and He would save them and redeem them and then he would bring those two factions together, Jews and Gentiles, into one body, the church. Do you know that in the entirety of the Old Testament, there is no illustration, analogy, or mention of this idea of the body of Christ? Now, there are a lot of other analogies that are listed. A lot of other things that he's borrowed, has the Apostle Paul and said, like a people of my own possession. That was a reference in the Old Testament to the Jews, and now he's applying it to the church, and that's okay. But there's one really, really unique, mysterious idea that was not mentioned in the Old Testament, and Paul says, I'm now revealing it to you, and it is this. It is the combining of Jews and Gentiles where no longer do they hate one another, but they've come together in one body in Christ, and it is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the context in which Paul was called by God to minister. You say, well, what's so significant about that? How about Paul the Pharisee? How about Paul the hater of those non-Jews? How about Paul being called as a person to go and reach those dreaded Gentiles? Can you imagine how God would have had to change this mind? of Paul, the complete reorientation of his heart toward those who were not his own countrymen. And God did it, and he did it on that Damascus road, and he slammed Paul down on that road, and he said, why are you persecuting me? And then he said, I'm going to take you to a faraway land, to the Gentiles, and you'll be preaching this glorious gospel to them. Now, if Paul was still having a heart that needed to be uh, transformed and changed, he would have said, not the Gentiles! You know, like like Jonah? Not, Not them, not the Ninevites, come on! Take me to my kinsmen! And Paul still had a heart for the Jews. He says in Romans 10, Lord, if it were that you could transfer all of this eternal salvation that you've promised me, and you gave it to my kinsmen, I'd gladly do it. But, if you want to save both those Jews, Romans 9, 10, 11, and the Gentiles, and if you're going to use me in a ministry context as a Jew, no less, to reach them, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. Because my heart of love has now been so transformed that I love all of those who've been created in the image of God. What's your context? What's your ministry context? 
Well, it may not be that which consists of working with different ethnic peoples, but certainly in a context in which even seven of our TOBC members who are now ministering to these Haitian orphans, maybe one of them, maybe one of my own daughters, might come back and say, Dad, Dad, I want to give the rest of my life to those people. I'd say, praise God. Praise God. Minister to those who are very different than you are for the sake of making the Word of God fully known. That's your context. Find out what your context is. It could be that you work in a hospital. It it could be that you work at a service station. It could be that you work in an office. It could be that you work as a teacher. It, It doesn't matter where you're working. In whatever context you find yourself in the grand providence of God, minister in that context and minister the content of the gospel. And as you minister the content of the gospel, you will realize the very commissioning of your life. And as you conduct yourself, you may even suffer for the cause of Christ. And if you do, you're blessed. You're blessed. This is, this is God's sovereign plan for Paul. And God has a plan for us. And whatever that plan is, and whatever God's doing, praise God that He will do it. What's, what's your context? Well, if you're a student right now, be a student for the glory of God. If you work in an office, be a Christian in that office to the glory of God. If you're A single person, serve in your singleness to the glory of God. If you're a single mom or a single dad, serve those around you to the glory of God. Whatever it is, wherever you're working, wherever you are, whatever family God has placed you, do what you do. You say, I don't know what my commission is. I don't know what my stewardship responsibility is. Wherever you are, just live for the glory of Christ and speak about Him to others. And God will move and mix and match and shape and form you to exactly where He wants you because there's no wasted time or effort with Him. And then when you look back on things and you say to yourself, I didn't quite know what it was, but now that I look back on things, every step of the way was ordered by the Lord and I did exactly what He wanted me to do and He pushed me over here and He did this and I was nudged over here and I did that and I opened my mouth and I fully proclaimed the Word of God and I wanted to be salt and light where I was and I want to bloom where I'm planted and I want to do it to the glory of God and God says, well done, good and faithful slave. Enter into the joy of your Lord. There's a couple more. How about another one? His commitment. His commitment. His conduct. His commissioning. His content. His context. His commitment. Oh, this is, this is rich. Look at verse 28. Him we proclaim. Him we proclaim. Who's Him? Christ in you. Christ in you. I proclaim Him, Paul says. And how does he do that? Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Paul says, I proclaim. I proclaim. He borrows a a word that normally spoke of the proclamation of a, a sacred festival or the proclamation of an imperial rule. I, I have a proclamation to make. I have a, a triumph. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 and 2. When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I was determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That was Paul's proclamation. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I don't know anything else. I'm a one-note Charlie. That's what I do. i got one beat of the drum. This is it. That's what I want to do. And you're looking at a man who is doing what he loves to do. What he wants to do. What he needs to do. What he's been responsibly called by God to do. I remember it like it was yesterday. I was in Daytona Beach, Florida. I was an 18-year-old young man. I'd just been converted I went down with Campus Crusade for Christ to do some witnessing on the beach during the week 
of spring break. And I remember being up in my hotel room and I remember looking out on that veranda, that terrace, and I saw literally tens of thousands of beachgoers. And I had this overwhelming sense, even as an 18-year-old newly converted young man who had no business doing what he was doing and being where he was being. But I looked upon all of those beachgoers from afar and I said to them, they are like sheep without a shepherd. And I want to be that shepherd. And God called me and fashioned me and shaped me and trained me and equipped me to be one of those who proclaims from a pulpit that the Word of God is to be fully known. And I was determined to do it. And I did not want to be dissuaded. I set my face like flint to do that thing. And God has blessed and given me joy unspeakable. And that's just one guy. What's the Lord doing in your life? What's, what's the proclamation that you're giving? What's, what's this proclamation that you declare? He says, I proclaim Him. And He says, I proclaim Him in two ways. Notice what He says. Warning everyone and teaching everyone. That word nor, uh, uh, warning is nutheteo. That's the word nuthetic that has become so very keen in Christian circles. It means to warn, to instruct, to admonish. So he says, here's what I proclaim. I proclaim Christ, and I do it by warning everyone, instructing them, admonishing them. That, that's the context in which someone's on a path and they're walking along that path, and it seems as though everything's okay, but then they begin to veer off that path, and when they do, a helper, a proclaimer, is there like Paul, like me, like you, and we come alongside that person and we say, you're veering, you're veering, you're stepping off the path, you're sinning against the Lord, there's a sin issue here, let's talk about this, let's pray about this, let's look at God's Word, and Paul says, I proclaim Him warning those who are going off the path. And then he says, and teaching everyone. Didasco, instruction, teaching, that's the skill of a teacher. It's not someone who's just warning, uh, someone who's just admonishing, it's also one who's coming alongside and instructing others. You say, well that's not me, I don't have a seminary degree. Doesn't matter one whit. What matters is that you're here, that you're listening to the Word of God, that you're hearing what Colossians 1 is saying, that you're soaking in Scripture, that you're going to read your Bible all year, that you're going to do it every day, that you're going to trust God, that you're growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and you're just going to come alongside somebody else, and you're just going to suggest, and in some cases admonish them to grow in Christ. You say, well, wait a minute. If I do that... That presupposes that I have to be myself growing in Christ. That's right. That's exactly right. And I'm committed to the thought that there are a lot of people out there as professing Christians who aren't doing that with others because they're not growing in Christ. And so they shy away from that. Well, I can't do that because I don't have my act together. Well, let me suggest, get your act together. And then go out and begin to minister to others, teaching them and admonishing them. And what does he say? With all wisdom. With all wisdom. You say, what kind of wisdom? Exactly what Paul says here in Colossians 2, 3. Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You're proclaiming Christ to them. That's the wisdom of God. You say, well, where is that found? Colossians 3.16 Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. And admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. F.F. F. Bruce said, The Christ whose life flows in all His people is the one whom the Apostle and his associates proclaim. He is the sum and substance of their message, whether in the saving news which they announce in the world to bring men and women to faith, or in the teaching which they have. Yes, yes, yes. They are doing what God wants. Yes. Teaching every man. 
Notice, every man. Now that part is convicting to me. You mean teaching everyone? Everyone with whom you come in contact? Yes, in a way, of a sort, yes. But how can I do that? Just by being who you are? And going where you go? And warning and teaching with all wisdom? So that you may what? What's the goal? What's the end? Look at what he says. So that everyone would be presented mature in Christ. Your translation may say perfect. Perfect in Christ. Complete in Christ. Teleos. That, that's the goal. That's, that's the end result. That's the conclusion. That's the, that's the home stretch. That's the final run. That's, that's the touchdown. That's, that's, that's the end of it all. And Paul says, I'm going to do this so that everybody in whom I come in contact is admonished when needed, taught when needed, with all wisdom, so that they would be presented to Jesus Christ as fully conformed to Him. You say, who is sufficient for these things? I'm just little old me. I'm just in the office. I'm just at the house. Should I say, whoever it is, your kids, your colleagues, you're bringing them to church, you're you're talking to them about Christ, you're serving them, you're teaching them, somebody you're counseling, whoever you're with in your sphere of influence, and you're doing it because you're saying to yourself, I want everybody, everybody to be complete in Christ. That's my goal, that's my desire, that's what Paul says. And when he says that, notice... He has to say in verse 29, and this is the last one, his capacity. His capacity. I mean, if you and I are challenged to present every man complete in Christ, to be admonishing everyone, to be teaching everyone with all wisdom so that they could be fully mature, perfect in Jesus Christ, totally conformed to his image, then you and I better have a power that's greater than our own. And notice what he says in verse 29. For this I toil. That's, that's a work word, isn't it? I toil. I labor. Kapiao. I, I work to the point of exhaustion. That word in wider Greek usage meant beating, which meant that someone was weary from being repeatedly struck means that they were physically beaten down, tired, worn out, exhausted because of the exertion of their lives. That's Paul. That's you. That's me. One of the greatest things that can happen to you and to me is to quite literally fall into bed at night totally exhausted because you gave your all for Christ. For this I labor. Notice the next word, struggling struggling, striving, agonizomai. I'm I'm agonizing because of the work. What is the work? Ministry. That's what I'm doing. I'm ministering to others and, and wherever and whatever I'm doing. Struggling, laboring. Here's another work word. With all His energy. Whose energy? God's. Christ's. In, in all of my labor and toil and my struggle, my agonizing with all His energy that He powerfully, that's another work word, powerfully works, that's another one, within me. I mean, look, toil, struggling, energy, powerfully works. Five separate words that's talking about a power that's clearly beyond our own. Clearly beyond our own. And it's the power source that we must have. Because if it's you and me in our own strength, it's going to run out pretty quickly. Pretty quickly. Lord, I need your power. Don't you assume that that was Paul's constant prayer? Lord, all of these beatings and imprisonments and shipwrecks, in addition to all these concerns about all of the churches... And he goes in these environments and he lacks sleep and he lacks food and he lacks the energy and the toil and the struggling to do it. And God says, 
That's exactly where I want you. Because you're out of your own strength. And I will infuse you with mine. Wow. God, give me strength. Give me energy. I've got to have your capacity. Because mine quickly runs out. Conduct, commission, content, context, commitment. That's Paul's commitment to present everyone mature in Christ. And he's got to have God's capacity. Is that your ministry? Is that your labor? Oh, this is so clearly beyond us. And yet God says he will make you able. He will do it because he's got his will and purpose and he's doing it through us. And what he commands us to do, he will give us the power to carry out. Let's bow together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask that with all of these principles in our hearts, that you would indeed show us, mold us, shape us, tell us, through your word, what we are to do. And you have. You have. You've given us what we need. You've commanded us what to do. It's so clear. It's here. And we want to do it. Every, every drop of time and effort and energy, we want to do it for the sake of the kingdom. We don't want to trivialize our lives. We don't want to make it amount to nothing. So we ask that you would make us individually and this, your church, Grow spiritually through these ministry definitions. And may they be the definitions that mark us as faithful ministers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Watch the one year anniversary presentation.